This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted to be today, today to be joined by my friend, Congressman Josh Gottheimer. Josh represents the 5th District of New Jersey, making him the first Democrat to represent that district since 1933. He is the co-founder and co-chairman of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which has several dozen members from both parties in Congress who have pledged to work closely together on all manner of issues and have done so. There are several nonpartisan groups that evaluate congressmen. One rated Josh as the most centrist member of Congress. He was named by another one, the Luger Center, this is in 2018, as the most bipartisan House freshman, and his score was almost double the next highest. The last guest on The Rabbi's Husband was actually one of Josh's constituents, Mort Fridman, the past president of APEC. And Mort said that as substantive, principled, and smart, as we all know Josh to be with national and global issues, he's just as good when it comes to constituent services. So welcome, Josh Gottheimer, truly a congressman for all seasons. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. That's a heck of an introduction. So thank you so much. And um, so you're chosen- I can leave now. Can I leave now? That was pretty, I mean, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, you, 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 you genuinely, you uh, genuinely deserve it. And you are, you are a kiddush Hashem. Now you, your chosen passage from the Bible is actually uh, three passages, uh, Proverbs uh, 29, 18, Proverbs 3, 17, and Isaiah 40, 31. So please explain to us um, what these passages are and uh, why they're meaningful to you. I'm gonna, I will narrow it to two because there's a lot. I gave you three of my favorite and then I decided I focused on two. Good. Um, because you, you did say your favorite and it's hard, it's hard to pick the one that moves you the most. But I, I'll start with Proverbs 29.18. Great. Chapter 29.18 because I, uh, that, that is, you made me pick one. That, that's the one I would, uh, that's, that, that's number which as everyone knows, where there is no vision, the people perish. And depending upon, of course, which translation you use, it's, uh, it's some version of that. Or without vision, the people become unrestrained. Exactly. Uh, there, you know, uh, several uh, initially, but there's, there's many different ways to frame it. But the, but the reason it has such importance to me is I, I think in government and in public service, one of the things that's often lacking is, and one of the things that frustrates me is sort of the day-to-day fighting that goes on over small matters and, and instead of focusing on really the big major values of where a leader hopes to take the country. Is this, and, is this and, uh, you know, in Congress you're, you're referring to? This is in Congress. This is in the presidency. Um, it's anybody who runs for any public position. I think the first thing that they should, uh, he or she should lay out to his or her constituents is what's the big picture? Well, you know, what's, what's your vision? What, what's your hope for the country? You know, because at the end of the day, we should always put country first. What is your hope for the country? And when I first really heard this passage used that way, if you remember back to 1992 in uh, Bill Clinton's uh, acceptance speech uh, for when he received the nomination of the Democratic uh, Party convention, which I think is, of course, timely since we're starting the Democratic convention this week uh, for uh, Vice President Biden for his uh, nomination. So George, for then President George Bush at the time was always needling Bill Clinton because Clinton was always talking about his vision. 
And George Bush was made fun of the vision and said that whole vision thing he's always talking about. Right. And, and President Clinton, in his acceptance speech, said that he, he said, well, you know, George Bush is always talking about my vision thing. Well, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I, I think that so I, I, to me, ever, ever since I heard it, uh, you know, I knew it growing up, but when I heard it in that context. I said, that's exactly right. You need to always present uh, any good elected official or somebody running should always present where they hope to bring the country. And that's why I think it's so powerful. Right. And, and, and the other translation of it, which, which you cited at the beginning, is that uh, without vision, it's really in reference to without prophetic vision, the people will be, un, will be unrestrained. Exactly. So Fazon, which means to see or to receive by revelation or uh, prophetic vision by which God saw his revelations to his prophets. And this also has, of course, a connection to Isaiah, who um, always talked about prophetic vision in that book. And Shabbos Mazon, the vision of Isaiah, the prophet of uh, comfort, you know, these, these pieces are all tied together. But yes, it is a, you know, without a vision or without a uh, following God's vision, you're unrestrained. And the importance of having, uh, obviously, a prophetic code. And, and it's not really meant, of course, for policy. It's really meant for, for spiritual vision. Uh, but I, I think that's, you know, so that's why I, from, if you put aside the public policy side of it, why it personally means a lot to me from a, a religious standpoint as a Jew is this idea of, of knowing that without um, Judaism to center me, um, that is my, without the vision given to me to, um, to help me understand and to think through uh, my approach to life and my approach to Judaism, that, that's also, of course, you know, at my core, what it means to me before there was ever a, a political side of my life. Right. And, and of course, the, the Bible tells us that our perhaps grand instruction is to know God in all of his, in all of our ways. So it says, know God in all of your ways. We're supposed to know God in all of our ways. And one of your ways is as a congressman and as the leader of the Problem Solvers Caucus. So it's very telling that you take Proverbs uh, 29, 18 as a way to guide you in, in your service. You uh, give, now, in terms of one of the various things about this proverb is that it's basically saying that what a leader has to do is set the vision and a moral vision, a prophetic vision. And without that vision, without that common goal that people are going to in some form of together, they're going to be wildly unrestrained. And when people are unrestrained, they can't accomplish anything. That's exactly right. And you think about the importance of what I, we must get back to a more united, right? To me, that's, it's a very important thing that I believe is missing. It's a hole in our country right now. Of, there's great division and it's very hard to, to come together, as you just pointed out, if you don't understand the broader vision of where we're going as a country, right? To paint that for, for us and then to drive toward it. And, you know, and whether that's Congress doing it or the president doing it from a, from a, a public standpoint, it's really, you know, I think that that's lacking. And what ends up happening is that we end up fighting about every little thing because we're not really sure what direction we're going. That's a good point. When, when, when there's a partnership of any kind, the little things stay little. Now, how do you see this playing on the Problem Solvers Caucus, both within people who've decided to join and most members are not in the Problem Solvers? You probably have 10%, right? A little more than 10%. That's right. Yeah. So why are there 90% of congressmen who are not in the Problem Solvers Caucus? And, and let's tie that back to the whole idea of a unifying vision is what gets people going together. Is there a unifying vision aligned with Proverbs 2018 in the Problem Solvers Caucus that there's lacking otherwise? 
it's it's a really you know I, it's a uh, it's an excellent question. You know, the if you think about there's 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans in the problem solvers, so 50 members, which is a little more than 10 percent of Congress. And I would say what holds us together more than anything is an appreciation that we've been sent to Washington to govern and to put the country first before party. If your loyalty is the other way, it's it's you're always going to do what's right to score a point for your party versus to maybe a score a point for the country, if that makes sense. And, I, and I, I, I'm not saying that my, my colleagues who aren't in it feel that way, but I think there's far too much of this general attitude that, that um, party comes before country, or, right? And, and, and the central, if you, if you believe in a unifying way that, that country should come first, you realize that you have to make certain sacrifices that you can't always have everything you want all the time, and that what's more important is moving the country forward uh, versus scoring a point to move the party forward, right? If you're constantly keeping score that way. You know, if you, it's interesting, Lincoln, you know, Solomon wrote Proverbs, right? Most of them. And, and most of them, right? And it was kind of his, if you could think of it as like almost his view of leadership of, uh, of, an, of an overriding vision, right? He, he had a vision for people. And I think Lincoln also drew on that when he was president in one of our country's darkest hours and driving toward the 13th Amendment. And um, of, of, he, he had a very, if you, if you obviously read his speeches and what he had to say, I think he had a very um, clear articulation of what he was driving toward. Well, you know, it's, it's such an interesting point because when, when you talk about Lincoln, it, if you think about it, whenever the country is in a time of inarguable crisis, the little things stay little, right? Whether it's it, after 9-11, I mean- Correct. It's because what a crisis does is it, one of the things it does, is it focuses us and concentrates us upon a vision. Correct. Which is like, you know, part of the frustration now, I would argue, is that there's not enough of a central vision being, being painted nationally, which is, which is leading to a lot of division among states and people and fighting with each other instead of somebody at the top saying, here's where we're headed. Here's what we need to do. Let's get, I need everyone to come on board versus that's your problem, that's your problem, that's your problem, and separating everybody out. It's part of what I believe has led to the current division about COVID. It's the idea, going back to Lincoln, and you asked me a question about the caucus, if you believe, if you fundamentally believe uh, and that you're willing to put aside some of the partisan bickering because it's about doing what's best for the country now, even if it means that your party may not advance, right? You have to kind of look at it that way. Uh, in my opinion, you have, to, you have to see it that way. The House divided among itself cannot stand like the sort of the fundamental idea that Lincoln believed that you can't be we we have to be united as a country. That is so. To go back to the caucus, I think what we need that that should be Congress. We shouldn't need a problem solvers caucus. That should just be Congress. Congress should think right. of that Great itself, point. right? As a as as what's doing what you're elected. Yeah. What would the founders have said if they knew that in 250 years or whatever it is, there'd be a problem solvers caucus? I mean, they would have thrown up their hands and said, "What did we do wrong?" They say, what are the other 90% doing? Exactly. The other right. doing. It's not to say you're going to agree on everything. I mean, in the caucus, we disagree all the time, the Democrats and Republicans, right? But we're able to, at the end of the day, say, let's keep driving, let's keep working until we can find a place of agreement. It's, 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 if you look right now on this COVID package, that's the, which is the next uh, package to help on everything from testing to uh, help people out of work to, um, te- to PPE, uh, to small business relief on the PPP program. If you look now at that, and right now our leaders are not even sitting at the table anymore. They sat for a while and then they walked away. To me, that's 
wholly irresponsible uh-huh. of all our leadership to walk away because you can never, you'll never get united behind. A, we, we did the first several packages together, united in the beginning of the crisis. If you remember, Mark, right? right? We the first three and a half packages we came together, and then at some point partisanship came into play. We were so divided; it became so broken that we we ended up. It became a political mess instead of country first. Just like you said, after nine eleven, we all came together, and even that broke after time. If you remember. Right, they held together and held together and held together, then broke apart. And so we held together for the BNA quote and held together, and now we're in a broken period. And I and I think we're facing a very potentially tough fall. We must come together, and we'll never beat this. So what you're saying is part of what a leader has to do is to do all the time what a crisis does sometimes, which is to basically keep people focused on the vision. A crisis does it. The vision. Right. A, a, yeah. That's, a crisis does it by itself, but a, a leader has to do it. That's what a great leader does is keep people focused on the vision. So take, but, even, take, but even in a crisis, the leader has to paint the vision for how you get out of the crisis. Great point. That's George right. Bush with the bullhorn at 9-11, right at the, at, the, at the site, if you remember, right, was a great moment of leadership. He was painting a vision. He said, right. He said, we'll, we'll, we'll make it through this. We'll get we'll get them. We'll make it through this as a country. Right. Right. I mean, it's a searing moment in my memory from that from right. And then and, and everyone who was alive then and remembers right of that moment. We're at one of these other crossroads. And I feel like we have no one with a bullhorn who is we need some or we need somebody with a bullhorn who articulates a vision for us. So I take the covid crisis. Um, what would a leader steeped in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen say and do? He, he does what a lot of leaders do. Uh, when, when they get up in the morning, the first thing they do is they recite a psalm or a proverb or a biblical verse that will really drive them through the day. A lot of leaders do that. So if we had a leader who was doing that with 2918, what would he be doing? I would hope whoever the leader is, that he or she would stand up and say, hey, we're going to make it out of this, America. This is going to be tough. I know how hard of a time we're going through. It's so awful for so many of our friends and family and loved ones we've lost. Acknowledging like what, what, what has happened to our country and how many people have been sick how many lives have been lost, right? I mean, start with, the, which is what I think about every day. I lost 3,700 people in the counties of my district, 3,700 people, right? So I wake up every day and I get an email from somebody who's talking about their family member who's still sick or whose life was lost. So I think about that first. And I think that's what a leader should talk about. And secondly, where are we going from a test? How do we get to the testing we need to, to get through this? How do we build that testing? What is going to be our approach on a vaccine and how we're going to get a vaccine and what we're doing to get there? And what are we doing in the meantime? Third, what kind of sacrifice we must all make, whether that's everyone's got to wear a mask every day when you're out of the house, whatever sacrifice we need to paint in order that everyone has to do and and talk about that sacrifice that we have to make in order to get through this. Because we're the greatest country in the world and we will give people the hope of how we get through this because we will uh, if we stick together. And then from there, how federal government in this case is going to work with the states and local and all the businesses and everybody to bring us together to get through it. And um, that to me is what right now we need. That's the vision we need of how we show people where we're going to get to if you make the sacrifice that we must make. Right. And, and, and when you announce a vision, as you just did, you can just see how what you said before would come true, how the little things would stay little and how the partisan fighting bickering, it wouldn't go away, but it would be significantly diminished and people would, would be ashamed of a lot of what they're proud of now. Yeah, Mark, that's exactly what it would be. People, people should be ashamed right now. of uh, uh, Many of our leaders, in my opinion, should be ashamed of the bickering that we're, of what we're actually fighting about. Whether it's, uh, you know, I, I I'm, uh, tend to be a very fiscally responsible person. Yes. I don't like the fact that we are 
you know, adding uh, to our debt the way we are and running the deficits we are. That said, I also understand that, that the cost to society will be much greater if we don't make the necessary investments now. We're, we are starting to, we, we have certain states saying, that state, that's their problem, not, not my problem, right? right? Well, instead of saying, yep, you know, New York has been through, uh, the one, has been through one of the worst uh, moments in its history and lost so many people and it has this shortfall, just like we look after somebody when there's a tornado or a hurricane and we're, or a flood and we, we get each other, we look out for each other, uh, as the Bible also teaches us to do, as scripture teaches us to do. And instead, people are saying, you know what, we weren't hit that hard here. And I'm, I'm not going to look after that state. Okay, so let's, let's move to Isaiah 40, 31, which if uh, Proverbs 29, 18 is your favorite passage, uh, this must be your second favorite passage. You know, I love this passage for a whole other reason, uh, from a, just a pure, from another way of, of, of drawing inspiration. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint, or faint not, depending upon which translation. And the idea here is if you, if you find your inspiration, and, and I know you have people listening who may be more uh, religious than other folks, or, but, but I think all faithful, I presume, all have a belief. You know, if, you, if you believe in some sort of higher being like I do, that you know, and if you have that hope and, 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 and believe that's part of your core, you will always uh, have the strength. You will have, always have the strength to move forward, even in very tough times. Two years ago, my I lost my mom, and uh, I was very, very close to her. And it was in the middle. It was in September, in the middle of uh, an election in November, in all my campaign. And I spoke to a very dear friend of mine, and I said to him, "I'm just, I'm just not sure I can carry on on the election. I feel that selfish. I should be mourning." And, uh, you know, I was not in a great emotional place, very upset about, about my loss. And my, you know, my mom was so close to my kids as well. It was, it was very tough. So my friend said to me, you can carry on. She want you to carry on. And then he sent me this passage from Isaiah 40:31, and basically said, if you keep faith, and, and I spoke to my rabbi every day, he said, if you keep faith, you'll get through this. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not be shamed. We'll get through it, and um, and it really helped me. I have to say, get through that. And I've, uh, I, with what so many people uh, are going through now, and have been through with COVID and other crises we're facing as a country. You know, I think this passage speaks volumes to having the strength to to carry on. It's a beautiful passage. You will soar like wings of eagles, run and not grow weary, weary, walk and not be faint. What a, what a, what a, what a great uh, way to uh, to overcome what you've overcome and to. Become who you become. Yes, and I, and I think now, especially, it, it mean, right? Don't you? I mean, what we're going through as a country again with COVID, um, with so many other obstacles, you know, that that have been thrown at us. You know, I, I say, I'm sure, like you do, that we had COVID, and then of course, and I know, Mark, you've been very involved in the racial justice issues, and with so many challenges of a country that we face, and then last week. In my district, people were out of power for five to seven days, <laughs> just just to throw that into the just to like kind of throw that into the mix. And a lot of, of older folks who I talked to were stuck in their homes. And you know, you, you think of of how people carry on and how you find the inspiration. And hey, you you can read this one, keep this on your wall, uh, and uh, that'll help you carry on. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, Josh, thank you for such a 
fascinating conversation about two such interesting uh, biblical passages. Um, and the final question always moves from one text, the Bible, to a very different text, which is Andre Melrue's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, uh, I just ran into a man um, with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to him, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Josh, in your uh, terms in Congress, two terms, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I've learned really, and I've seen this, how good people can be and how much kindness goes on every single day that people aren't aware of. So that's the first thing I'd say, you know. In, uh, in the halls of Congress? And, and, what I, what I, and what I mean by that is, well, no, as a member of Congress, just sorry, I should say, I've, I've learned that people who just who live day in, day out and just go do the, on their thing, the people I represent, how good people are. And what I mean by that is there's so much generosity that goes on, generosity of spirit and, and deed that doesn't get recognized because if you were to watch the evening news or look on social media, you would think that everybody is just awful and that nobody does anything for anybody else. But in fact, as we just saw, I mean, I have something called Hometown Heroes uh, in, in, in that I started this program in my district where I recognize people who don't get recognition they deserve for doing small things. And during COVID, I ask community leaders, I say, send me, or I'll read it in the newspaper or see, ask a community leader of an unsung hero. And during COVID, just for example, we've got hundreds of things people did from sewing masks to picking up food for a neighbor or, you know, s- small acts of kindness that go on every day that are frankly just not, no one knows about and not recognized. And a part of the reason why I started Hometown Heroes was because I do twice a year, we find about 50 people to recognize who do things. You know, someone saves someone's life on the side, pulls over on the side of the road and saves a life or little things that go on all the time and no one gets recognition for it. And I, I now, I think they should. And I, I, for a while when there were, when there was local news, um, I, I could get people to cover it because I said, shouldn't we actually talk about more positive things instead of just always focusing on the negative? And so number one was I actually, there's, there's a lot of kindness that happens every day that I wish we would celebrate more. The second thing I learned about my colleagues is that 99% of them are there for the right reason. That high, 99%? I'd say very few Interesting. that I've met do I question their motives of why they're there or say, there's no reason the person's here anymore, or I don't, I don't, I don't, right? Even if I disagree with their views, that's okay. But they believe in what they're doing and, who, and, and, and representing their constituents and are, are, making good, are making sacrifices to serve, which is obviously an enormous honor. Um, so I, I, I'm usually pretty amazed by uh, that. I was a big, I was surprised by that. I would have said that I would have walked away and say much, a, a much greater number of my colleagues, uh, I'm not sure why they're here. Uh, so, so serving in Washington, serving in Congress, serving into what people derogatively call the swamp has actually made you more idealistic and more hopeful rather than less. Yes, I, I, it has. I think there are outside factors that are caught, many outside factors that are actually contributing to all the gridlock and the nastiness. And, and that if you actually shut down the social media and the cable news and you brought that and, and you, right now there are very few incentives to focus on working together, right? You're punished for it instead of rewarded for working together. And if we actually went back to rewarding people who work together, 
you'd have a much, you'd immediately overnight have a much different system. Because most of the time when we're in a room, you can agree on it. You can find 80% of things you'd agree on. And most people want to move forward, but the incentive structure right now is not there to do it. You get punished for it. You know, this wonderful conversation you're having, a constructive conversation like this is not uh, the conversation of the day, right? Everything is in 30 second sound bites where people just want to, again, score points for their party because scoring points for working together is, is just not the, the model right now. Well, Josh, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation on The Rabbi's Husband. And, and thank you for being a, such a great congressman, not only for the 5th District of, of New Jersey, but such a model for all other congressmen and such a, a just a, a model of what it means to be a great public servant. So thank you. Mark, thank you so much for having me. 